Good evening and welcome to Thursday Night Tailgate, where NFL legends live. Join us tonight as we get more legendary stories from former players and coaches who were in the huddles, on the sidelines, and in the locker room. Plus insights from media members from around the country who have covered the game for decades. Check out our five-star picks of the week with former Patriots Pro Bowl running back Tony Collins. Plus, our spotlight on the positive segment. And here are some good things for a change about what players and teams are doing in their communities. Now, here are your hosts, Chris Mascaro and Bob Lazari. Go get them, guys. Hey, good evening, folks, and thank you for joining us on Thursday Night Tailgate, where your favorite NFL legends live. Chris Mascaro and Bob Lazari here one last time for you this season. Tonight, we're going to look back at the Super Bowl, plus we'll be joined by Yale head coach Tony Reno, former Chiefs wide receiver Eddie Kennison, and former Major League infielder Kurt Pavacqua. Bob, how are you, my friend? Hi, Chris. How are you tonight? I'm wonderful. Thank you. It's yeah, we're going to put a bow on year number 11 of this show tonight, Bob. It's it's always a little sad when the season ends, but you know what? We get to look forward to spring. The high temperature here, like we were talking prior to the show, is going to be 82 in Atlanta on Thursday, and it was 27 degrees last Saturday morning, 82 this coming Thursday. Spring is, uh, I guess, going to spring all of a sudden on us. You know it does, Chris, and before you know it, uh, we'll be watching golf and talking about golf and going to golf tournaments, et cetera, <laughs> like that. So, uh, But, yeah, it's always a little bit of a sad thing, but uh, as you know, as we get older, it seems the time moves quicker. So uh, <laughs> right. with some divine help, I can only help that we can have a 12th season coming up uh, not too long from now. That's right. We'll look forward to season number 12. Always, always great to start off fresh. and. Speaking of fresh, like I say, you know, with the spring, you mentioned golf. I'm looking forward to a lot of golf this year. Looking forward to baseball season, right? We have pitchers and catchers and the veterans have reported and spring training games are going to be starting soon. Before you know it, the Major League Baseball season will be will be at opening day. The Masters, always one of my highlights of the year. I love being out at Augusta National. I love playing the game of golf. I love seeing the azaleas bloom. So spring, Bob, can't wait. You're right, Chris. And, um, you know, I'm sure uh, the two of us will be talking to uh, our good friend uh, from the Travelers uh, Tournament, Nathan Grube, um, when that comes up and I'll be out there. uh, That'll be in June. So uh, we got a lot to look forward to. Yeah, we do. All right, let's talk some football. Got to get your thoughts, Bob. The first time we've spoken since the Super Bowl. What'd you think? Well, Chris, I had it. I had the score. Well, I had the three point uh, victory by Kansas City. I had a 30-27, so I undershot the uh, the total points, but kind of went the way I thought, Chris. I thought some points would be scored. I thought, and I tweeted about it during the game. I mean, can I could Kansas City win this game in spite of their defense? To this day, I'll I'll go to my grave saying that's just not a good defensive team. But uh, the whole thing was, could they outscore their mistakes? And they did. Um, and when it comes right down to it, when you had two teams that that uh, closely matched Chris. I'll go with the quarterback and the coach, and the Mahomes Reed combination is really tough to beat. Yeah, no, no kidding. Um, 
I got a little worried for Kansas City. Obviously, that was the team I was pulling for as well. We've got our good friend Eddie Kennison joining us tonight. I got my Eddie Kennison jersey on. I was really pulling for Kansas City, and I was worried in the first half. I thought, boy, the Eagles just seem like they are dominating this game, and the, their defense actually made some good adjustments in the second half, only gave up 11 in that second half. I, but I, I thought they were going to need some breaks. They got a couple. And then uh, it they, they seemed to settle them down, and and the, and the Chiefs' offense took off. And uh, I thought it was a great game. I, I enjoyed it. Um, happy for Patrick Mahomes to get another one. Now the question's got to become, Bob, are they on a Patriot-esque sort of run? This is what three, uh, four Super Bowls in five years. They got they won they won one they, and, uh, and and they lost one. So I guess that's three Super Bowls in five years. But um, they they're they're starting to look a little dynasty dynasty esque if they can keep this up for a few more years. That's very true, Chris. Uh, there uh, and this is probably what's keeping um, Andy Reid around. You know, this is a guy going to be sixty five years old or whatever, and you would wonder. You know, I was under the impression that you know he might want to go out on top, and uh, you know a guy like Bienemy would just be pushed into that position. Well, that's not happening. Obviously, uh, for what we've seen this week, and it seems like Reed did not give it any indication he's close to leaving yet. So, um, you know, when you got the best quarterback in the world and you still have those offensive guys and a lot of offensive guys this year that they really didn't count on came through. So they're probably stronger than Reed ever thought right now. So why wouldn't he try to uh, continue a dynasty? Yeah, 100 percent. Talking about guys doing the right things and heads up and that sort of thing, Bob. I mean, Jarek McKinnon, what a heads-up play not to score in the final minute of the game. That stood out to me. It was clear that the Eagles were going to let him score, but sliding down short of the goal line had to be tough for him. I'm sure every running back's dream is to score a touchdown in the Super Bowl, but it was clearly the right play for him to make, and a great heads-up play, I thought. You know, he's been around a long time, Chris. A lot of people haven't heard of him. You know, he was just making his mark, uh, you know, uh, with other teams um, before he got hurt. Uh, had some major surgery, then had a setback after. They kind of kept him out of the league for a couple of years. This is a guy that's almost 30 years old, and and uh, but you get the idea that he's experienced enough and he knows what was happening. And I got to give Reed and that entire coaching staff, uh, you know, you got to get that word out to everybody on that offense. You cannot score right now. And, uh, you know, with all the chaos of a Super Bowl and crowd noise and everything, that message was put across to every guy on that team and uh uh that's a reason another reason why uh when you're smart you usually win there you go and then two days after the game bob the eagles become the first team since the 1994 san francisco 49ers to lose both of their coordinators to head coaching jobs offensive coordinator steve stitchin takes over as head coach of the colts and then defensive coordinator jonathan gannon becomes the head coach of the Cardinals. How do you think that's going to impact the Eagles' ability to get back to the Super Bowl next season? Well, this is almost unprecedented, Chris. I don't believe that's happened in, in three decades from what I read. Uh, Stitching again, any uh, offense and defensive coordinator going at the same time. Now, you know, the head coach obviously has a lot to do with it. Um, you know, a, a team like Kansas City losing Biennemi, I don't think is a big a deal because Reed was really calling the shots. Now a guy like Stitchin uh, with Sirianni, I mean, this is probably a 50, 50 thing. Uh, I think it's going to be huge, Chris. I don't think you could take a hit like that. 
I mean, they they have to fill those two positions, and uh, especially on defense, that was one of the best defenses in the league. You're not going to get any better. Let's put it that way. So they're probably going to take a step back. So um, I, 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 um, I almost feel for them. You know, Sirianni did such a great job, and now he's going to lose two main cogs in that machine. I don't think they'll be as strong. They're going to be very good, but I don't think you can replace guys like that. And Bob, you've mentioned Bienemy a couple of times, and here's a guy that continues not to get head coaching jobs, which is mind-boggling to me. What do you make of, of him not getting any of the open head coaching positions but then ultimately still leaving Kansas City for a lateral move as offensive coordinator with the commanders. You know, Chris, I'm not sure that he could not have had a, a head coaching job in the past. I think, I mean, number one, why would you want to leave a situation like he had in Kansas City uh, as far as winning and learning and everything like that? But, you know, you, you see the uh, stories out today, a guy like LaShawn McCoy, who knows as good as anyone being in the system uh, said, it's mostly an Andy Reid offense, no matter what. Now the enemy probably wanted to finally break away, gets a Super Bowl ring. Now finally wants to break away and see if he can do it on his own. It's going to be very tough, Chris, because as McCoy said, you know, this is probably a 70% Andy Reid thing. Uh, so, you know, I mean, the enemy was there and obviously he made a lot of, uh, had a lot of good input into things. But uh, he's taken off. He's taken on a very big, big job right now. And a big, (laughs) big, uh, got a lot of work ahead of him. Let's just put it that way. I guess he wants to put his name out there. And and if he succeeds there, trust me, he'll get a head coaching job. But this is going to be, it's tough, you know. And I think he probably got the idea that, look, Reed's not leaving, so I have to do something. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. He's a guy betting on himself, right? He's going to bet on himself getting out from underneath Reed, getting out from underneath, having the MVP and, and, and Patrick Mahomes going over to the commanders who they, Terry uh, McLaughlin is a uh, McLaurin is a really good wide receiver. I like McLaurin a lot, but you're, you're taking over. Who's the quarter? Sam Howe. He's mm-hmm. going to be your guy, right? And who do you got at running back? What do you, ooh, you're, to your point, mm-hmm. if he makes that a success, those guys end up winning 10, 11, 12 games, whether it's next season or, or over the next couple of seasons, get in the playoffs, then then you really have done something. I, I can really stick, yeah. you know, put your name on that. And I think Kansas City would gladly have him back when Reed leaves. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point, too, right? Go bide your time, go somewhere else, be successful for the next two, three years. And if Reed decides to step down, you go back. And especially if you uh, do great stuff with the commanders, which I'm sure he's going to do. Let's move along to our unsung hero of the week award. Bob, was there a lesser known guy in the Super Bowl that stuck out to you? You know, Chris, to me, this is kind of a no brainer. We've talked during the year about guys like Pacheco. I mean, he obviously, but he, he, he basically became a household name going into the Super Bowl. And he was one of the keys that I thought had to have a good game. And uh, he came through, man. I mean, he ran hard. He just kept that energy level. The guy was really, he, he really put that team over the top this year. But I'm sure you'll agree, Chris, we have to give a shout out this week to the offensive line of the Chiefs. I mean, this in going into the game, and many guys said this was the key to the game. And many people thought there was no way they were going to stop Billy from sacking the court. Well, they allowed no sacks. Yep. And people are saying, and this is a 
this was a line that was kind of much aligned throughout the year, Chris. Guys changed places. Guys got hurt. There was replacements. But for the Super Bowl, we have to shout out Orlando Brown, Joe Tooney, Creed Humphrey, Trey Smith, Andrew Wiley. They won that game. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. Good call out of you because you're right. Everybody was talking about the pressure that the Eagles have put on the quarterback all year long. And could they, you know, keep um, uh, Patrick Mahomes upright enough? Obviously, with the ankle, right? Is he going to be running for his life? Are they going to sack him a whole bunch of times? And they did make the big difference in the game. So I agree with you. That's a good call. For me, Bob, my unsung hero of the week award goes out to Chiefs wide receiver Kadarius Toney. He was acquired by the Chiefs back in late October from the Giants. He was the Giants' first-round draft pick in 2021. Things weren't working out for him there in New York. The Chiefs gave the Giants a conditional third-round pick and a sixth-round pick for him. Hadn't made much of an impact since arriving in Kansas City. In fact, he was inactive for three games. In the seven games he did play for Casey, he had 14 catches for 171 yards and two touchdowns. Didn't kill it in the Super Bowl either, but his five-yard touchdown catch and punt return were largely the difference in the game. His touchdown gave the Chiefs their first lead of the game, 28-27, early in the fourth quarter. Then after the Eagles subsequently went three and out after the kickoff, he returned the punt 65 yards to the five-yard line. I think along with Nick Bolton's scoop and score touchdown that tied the game at 14, Tony's two plays might have been the biggest plays of the game, and that's why he's my unsung hero of the week. All right, let's get into this week's edition of Bob's Take. And Bob, I want to start by getting your thoughts on Lamar Jackson's future in Baltimore. We, along with a lot of other people, have been wondering out loud about how serious Jackson's injury was that kept him out of the last several weeks of the regular season, plus their one playoff game. Now he's a free agent. The Ravens could tag him. They could franchise tag him this year and next year if they wanted to. Can he mend the fences there in Baltimore? And what do you think his future is there? Well, at the end of that year, Chris, there was a lot of people thinking, you know, he's, he's got to play. He has to do this, uh, you know, and obviously he's thinking for his future and his and his pocketbook. Basically, that would, it's a tough call, Chris. I mean, they're probably I, I cannot picture him not being there next year because, number one, their offense revolves around running and him. And you just can't make a change from now until draft day and just totally change your offense. So he's going to be there, may not be the happiest guy in the world, but. You know, it's just still going to make a lot of money. And uh, I guess he has to prove to a lot of people, number one, that he can play hurt. Number two, that he can play an entire season, Chris. And you and I on this show have said many times, a running quarterback like him, it's, it's very, very shaky if he can do a whole 17-game season. Right. Speaking of free agent quarterbacks, Bob, Derek Carr is out there. Where do you think he ends up? What's your take there? I still got to think the Jets are the, they're the probably on him as much as anyone. Chris, today it was reported that Frank Reich uh, is not going to close the door on him. But Carolina has a number nine draft pick. Reich is, is, is right now, he, he's at the stage, Chris, where he's still getting familiar with his team. He doesn't even know who he has yet. So I don't know. You know, he's, he says, I can't rule it out. But it seems like they may want to go a younger route and uh, see what they want to do with that draft pick. Because, uh, you know, Darnold is probably not the answer, but um, anybody they look at, Carr included, would probably be an upgrade. But I think he's still, the Jets have gone right out and say, we want an older quarterback. So there's your answer. There you go. 
One more on the quarterbacks, Bob. And we've all seen that ridiculous statement, whether it was Daniel Jones or his agent, floated out there that he wants $45 million a year from the Giants. Surely he's kidding, Bob. Oh, Chris, I mean, this is, I mean, I think when he heard that a guy like Hertz is going to command 45 to 50, he says, look, I'm in the same division. Uh, I played uh, even with this guy, you know, I'm, I'm a good quarterback. That's the position of quarterback in the NFL right now. But this is not a guy that's put together a few good seasons. He's basically put some games together, Chris, and he uh, wants a new agent and everything. Uh, it is insane, Chris. He would have to give me another year or two to see that this is the guy that can get us to the promised land. But that's just agents talking. It's ego talking. But this guy's probably not worth half that money at this point. <laughs> I couldn't agree with that one. All right, that's this week's edition of Bob's Take. We've got a great show in store for you tonight. Again, our guests, Tony Reno, Eddie Kennison, and Kurt Vakwa. We're going to be right back with Coach Reno on the other side of this real quick station break. Thursday Night Tailgate, where the spotlight is always on the positive. Tune in Thursday night from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time to hear your favorite NFL legends, players, and coaches sharing their stories. Now back to Chris and Bob. I wouldn't joke about anything else that happened to you tonight. All right, now back with us is Yale head football coach and Ivy League coach of the year, Tony Reno. Let me remind you about his background. He's from Oxford, Massachusetts, played his college ball at Worcester State College, where he was a three-year starter at free safety, helped them to two league championships, graduated with his master's degree in health science, started his coaching career as a defensive assistant at King's College in Pennsylvania. He went back and served as Worcester State's defensive coordinator from 1998 to 2002 and won the 2002 Aflac Coach Magazine National Assistant of the Year Award. Moved over and did his first in at Yale as their wide receivers coach in 2003 and then became their defensive secondary coach from 2004 to 2008. From there, he went to Harvard to serve as special teams coordinator and secondary coach from 2009 to 2011, helped them to an undefeated Ivy League championship in 2011. Yale then hired him to be their 34th head coach in 2012, and he led them to an Ivy League title in 2017 and their first outright league title in 37 years. They were co-champions in 2019 and then won another outright championship this past season. And we're honored he is back with us again tonight here on Thursday Night Tailgate. Good evening, Coach Chris and Bob. Thanks for coming hey, back Tony. on the show. Hey, fellas. Bob, Chris, how are you? Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Always a pleasure. Coach, I want to Same start here. off by talking about that Ivy League championship. You're third in the last five seasons. Talk about this past uh, this past season and what made this team so special. It truly was a special team, guys. I mean, they, uh, you know, from the start, from, from really when we got back from Christmas break, um, last year, a little, a little over a year ago, they, uh, they made a decision that they wanted to, you know, be more for each other and really build strong relationships and, and really become, um, you know, become a team that, you know, that really laid it on the line for each other every day. And uh, they were just a lot of fun to coach. We had incredible leadership from, Come from our senior class all the way on down, really through all the way through our freshman and sophomore classes, did a nice job. And it probably wasn't the most talented team we've had, um, or the, the one that was as really had, you know, superior offense, defensive special teams, but it may have, may have been the most balanced team we've had. Um, really all three phases and 
you know, for the most part in, you know, eight of the, eight of the 10 games, we've really complimented each other really well and played our best football, you know, in the last, in the last three or four weeks of the season. And the guys really peaked at the right time. And um, I think we were, you know, by the end of the year, we were running the ball really, really well. And we were playing great defense that helped us win a championship. And coach, the final game of the season, always against Harvard, the game this past year, not, nothing different, another nail biter. Talk about that whole week and what that week is like leading up to the game. And then that last minute interception that clinched the win and the league title for you guys. I say to the guys all the time, you know, in our league, I mean, you have to be ready to win the game on the last play. Um, and that's just, you know, the truth of the matter in the Ivy League, which one of the things that makes this league so great is the parity that exists. And, you know, and you look at our season, I mean, the, the week before we had played Princeton and we, you know, we had to knock a pass away with on the last play of the game. And, um, you know, it was no different than that, that week uh, after um, against that team up in Cambridge. You know, we uh, the guys had coming off a really a really good win at home against an undefeated Princeton team, um, and they knew it was going to happen. They knew that you know obviously it was going to be a, a stadium full of people, and there was going to be a high level of emotion and adrenaline, and um, and that they'd have to win it, you know, win it late and find a way to win it late, and uh, and we did. I think at the end of the game, our defense really, our front really did a nice job of putting pressure on the quarterback. You know, Hamilton uh, really, really made a nice play at the end uh, to close it out. And, you know, get the interception, and um, so I was really proud of how the guys handled those moments because, you know, in, in championship teams, I mean, those those teams seem to relish those moments. Um, the ones we've had, at least, seem to relish those moments. And coach, like I mentioned in your intro, you were named Ivy League Coach of the Year. What's it like when that call comes in? Oh, uh, it's just that, you know, really it, the, the, the honor is, uh, it really goes to the players and the assistant coaches. And you've got, you know, you, you're only, um, you're only really one small piece of uh, an amazing organization that you know, starts with our incredible president and athletic director, you know, director of admissions all the way down through our players, and assistant coaches. So, you know, everyone, everyone takes, uh, you know, a bow in that, uh, when you have a championship or any honors, because none of this happens unless you know, we have, uh, really total, you know, alignment in everything we do here at Yale, and it's just so—it's uh, really an honor to be part of this great organization that has such an alignment all the way from the top down. Bob, questions for Coach? Again, Tony, we can't thank you enough for joining us. I, we've had you on every year since you got to Yale, either on the TV side or radio side, and uh, it was great seeing you before the Princeton game, even for a fleeting moment. Uh, one of the great games of the year, as you said, and. As far as the magical season, Tony topped off by the Ivy League title. You guys were five and zero at the bowl. I was privileged to see all five of them. Uh, obviously, you guys are you're more than comfy on the home turf in New Haven, and you must take a lot of pride in not losing in your own house. No, we do, Bob. I mean, it's you know, it, it, we're very fortunate. We you know, we were able to um, put in the uh, put in the turf um, a few years back. We we practice in there every day and. Um, it's, you know, we, we take a lot of pride in, in, in that stadium and in, in winning at Yale. And, um, you know, we defend our field at all costs and our guys really, uh, play really well at home. And, um, you know, we, we take it, we take it to the next level, I think there. And, uh, you know, we've got a great crowd, we've got a great support. And, um, you said it best. I mean, we're five and zero at home and, you know, and in those games, we had some big wins and, and we came from behind in a couple of those games and, um, a lot of it has to do with just 
our kids just, you know, failed to surrender at all. And in any of those opportunities and, you know, again, it goes back to, you know, it goes back to the kids. We've got such great kids here. I really do. They just, you know, it's like, it's not even, you know, the leadership they provide and and the way they play together. um, It's just so much fun to coach and, you know, just seeing them grow. And, you know, we've been back on the field again, start this season. Team 150 has been out, you know, doing drill work and conditioning and those kind of things. And as we get ready for spring practice and, um, and you see it and you feel it. And, you know, every time we come down that tunnel, it's a special feeling. And Tony, that opening game lost to Holy Cross. Now this was a team that would actually advance to the quarterfinals of the FCS playoffs and lose to the eventual champion. Looking back, tell us how good the Crusaders were and was it to your advantage to to play such a good team right out of the gate? You know, and I think, you know, the answer, the answer is they're really good. And, and yes, um, we've, we've been fortunate, you know, since um, we scheduled Holy Cross to be our opener. I think we had, we we're 10 years. Um, we're, we're somewhere in the middle of a 10 year deal with them. And, and what I knew going in was that they were, you know, the tradition and history of, of them and, and a great program. And the other piece was, is that they were always going to have at least two games under their belt before they played us. So, I felt strongly it was always going to be a tough game for us and it would prepare us for the Ivy League, first Ivy League game. And, um, you know, sometimes you get exposed. Um, and that's what happened this year was, you know, we went into the game. They were very good. They played very well. And, you know, we weren't, we weren't ready yet. And we, we didn't play well. And um, it allowed us to really grow as a team um, rapidly from week one to week two. And, you know, if we had played a team that was um, inferior or a team that wasn't, you know, wasn't as good um, or as great of a competition as Holy Cross. We never would have been able to grow as fast as we did early in the season. Coach Joshua Pitsenberger was named Ivy League Rookie of the Year. Here's a kid from Bethesda, Maryland, rushed for 667 yards and seven touchdowns this season. We've mentioned the Princeton game, had a big one there, rushing for 108 and a touchdown. How excited are you about this young man? Oh gosh. I mean, he's, he's, he's going to be something special. I mean, we, we love Josh and, you know, obviously we were able to play him and Trey Peterson really just alternated carries in the backfield and created a, a great one, two punch as they both, you know, were the top, the top three in the league and rushing or four in the league and rushing. And, um, but Pitts is, you know, he's a, he's one of those guys who came to us, um, as you mentioned from Maryland, from a small school, um, you know, he's kind of a diamond in the rough. He was under recruited. And um, we were able to, you know, get him to come to Yale, you know, from the, from the first moment you met him, he's just got this, like, he's got this very calm, even keeled demeanor. But when he gets on the field, he's, he's a physical, tough runner. Um, He's got some elements to him of a power runner. um, And then he has the ability to break away and, you know, he really just a a great, um, he's got a great contrast in how he runs the football. He catches the ball really well. Um, He's really working on his blocking. You know, and just on in watching film and being come, becoming better in his protections. Um, it was a great, you know, compliment with him and Trey. I mean, I think they're they're two different runners. Um, Trey's a physical, strong kid, but he's a lot smaller, and he kind of gets kind of gets hidden behind the line of scrimmage. And Josh is much more of that power runner. So, um, you know, we're really fortunate to have both of those guys, you know, back for another year. And your offensive line only allowed seven sacks all season talk about what those big guys did for you 
No, they were great all season long. I mean, we played, you know, we played about seven guys in the front, and um, you know, led by our seniors, Nick Arjula, our captain, and then Cubby Schuler um, and Pat Nauer, both two senior guards that played for us. And so the the, the line really grew um, really through preseason camp and the season. And then, you know, I think when you look at it, like one stat, I think it's very appropriate for them. Uh, you know, you mentioned seven sacks, but I mean, we ran for 500 and 45 yards the last two weeks of the season. We ran for 320 plus against Princeton and 220 plus against the team from Cambridge. And, um, you know, when you look at that in your last two games, when you're able to really control the line of scrimmage like that, when everyone, everyone knows you're a running team, um, it just tells you a lot about the offensive line. And your defense stepped up, did a great job, particularly in that Harvard game, stopping the run. Harvard had come in, averaging 4.3 yards a carry during the season. You hold them to 2.5. Talk about that defense. We grew. I mean, we grew as the season went on. You know, we were, um, we, we had some really tough injuries on defense too. You know, we lost, we lost two of our best players. We lost um, Osor Chugu Ifeshinescu, um, one of our preseason All-American defensive end. We lost him early in the year. We lost Nathan Hickey in week three of the year, both for the season. And two, like, really, um, game-changing players uh, on defense that, you know, are huge losses for us. And, you know, the credit goes to the guys. I mean, they stepped up. I mean, we had some young guys step up into into really key roles that um, that allowed us to get better as the season wore on. And then, you know, what you saw really from, you know, week, really from week five on is that just they, the defense just played with so much confidence. And they grew and got better and better every week. And then, obviously, the, you know, the last two weeks, I mean, we, we faced a really tough um, passing attack in week nine against Princeton. And then obviously last week, a pretty balanced attack. But as you mentioned, uh, you know, arguably the best running back in the league in Aiden Morgay, uh, up from the team from the North up there. And, you know, we were able to really take the running element out of the game and um, really force, you know, force them to throw the football. And, you know, and, and we were able to really capitalize on that with pass rush. Bob Moore for coach. Yeah, Tony, one more thing about Pittsburgher. Is it me, Coach, or does he remind you of Zane Dudek a bit? You know, the running back who graduated last year. To me, Tony, the way he follows blockers and sees the field, uh, kind of the same demeanor, at least what, from what I've seen. Is that true? He's kind of a cross between a few guys. You know, I mean, yeah. he's, um, you know, I was an assistant when we had Mike McLeod. Um, and, you know, and obviously I coached Tyler. Uh, Varga and he's got some of those elements of you know Michael and Tyler's power running style um he's not as big and he's about 220 pounds now um, but he played the season about just under 210 and um he's got that power style but as you mentioned like he has the ability to make that one cut Zane had that really dangerous jump cut that he had you know especially when he was healthy and unfortunately Zane you know played he was heroic and he played so many games just banged up for us but um, when he was healthy, yeah, he had a vicious jump cut. And, you know, Pitts, Pitts has the ability to change speeds and change directions like Zane um, in that component. But he also has that power element, which I think, you know, as he continues to grow and get and get thicker and stronger, it's going to be really, really tough to stop. And uh, as we talk more about the strong running game, Tony, this is a team that averaged more than 30 points a game. Three guys averaged more than five and a half yards per carry. Uh, we haven't mentioned the quarterback who led them in rushing, Nolan Grooms. I had a chance to get a few words with him before the Princeton game. 
to me, Tony, uh, he seems fearless, so cool under pressure, incredibly elusive. Uh, he's just like ice in his veins. Talk more about Nolan. <laughs> yeah, he's he's special. I mean, we've been fortunate, you know, from Morgan Roberts to Kurt Rawlings to to Nolan Grooms. We've been really blessed with some really great quarterbacks, and um, they're all been a little different, you know. And and Nolan, as you mentioned, is a uh, you know he's a, an elite runner um, who's growing as a passer, and we were able to really do some things that put him in a great situation. He, you know, he made some amazing plays um, for us, but yeah, he is fearless, you know, and he's grew, he grew as a quarterback. He went from being an athlete to start a season to a quarterback to end the season. And um, to see him grow as a player was, uh, was a lot of fun to watch. And I mean, he's just a great, great kid. I mean, he's a son of a high school coach, and, you know, a lot like Kurt in, the, in that same way where you know, he grew up on a football field. So, you know, those are some of the things that you really can't, you really can't measure. I mean, he just understands the game at a really high level, and he's so um, he's so competitive, and it comes out when he plays. Coach, just a couple more before we let you go, and a few more Ivy League titles. And Yale is going to catch Dartmouth for the most championships all time in the conference. Do you have that number of league titles highlighted somewhere visible as a goal for you and the team to attain? <laughs> yeah, we, you know. We have that goal every year, right? It's like, you know, we're, um, we're, we've been very fortunate where we've had, you know, we've had some great players that have helped us, you know, have some championships here. And, you know, we, we, we go out, we started this season, uh, we have our team banquets this Saturday after, excuse me, a Sunday after the last game, you know, team 150 set sail on, on that Monday and, um, with the goal of, you know, being a championship elite team. So, um, you know, we're, we're, we're truly chasing it every year. And with all but two of your games being in conference, the teams have to get to know each other extremely well. I imagine it's hard to catch any team off guard with what you're trying to do. How challenging is it to game plan? And really, does it come down to which team executes what you're trying to do better? It is. It's, um, you know, I think there's a lot of things that make uh, things pretty equal in our league. And, you know, the talent is pretty equal in all teams. And, you know, it usually comes down to a few plays. Um, and, you know, and obviously the difference with our league is that, you know, as Bob mentioned earlier, like, um, you know, that there's no, some teams can go to the playoffs. You mentioned Holy Cross in the playoffs. And, you know, Fordham with Joe Conlon, who was with us um, for a while as our offense coordinator, and now he's the head coach at Fordham. Like, they, you know, they made the national playoffs, um, finishing second in the league, and they had a tremendous year. Um, but for us, you know, there's no like second place doesn't there's no playoff bid. Um, so every game is so crucial in our league because you know if you want to be the last one standing at the end, you've got to you've got to find a way to win them all. Um, so you know you those few critical plays in each game matter so much, and I do think that you know the team that has the ability to really withstand um, withstand adversity and be able to play really well together as the teams that end up end up winning these games and end up winning championships. And, you know, it's uh, you see it year in and year out. And, um, you know, I think that's one of the things that makes our league so unique. Bob, one more for Coach before we let him go. Yeah, Tony, I have to give props to your special teams too. And you know uh, the fine details of special team planning and everything 
wins football games. Guys on your team like Lindley and Felton returned kicks well this year. But I was very impressed with Jack uh, Bosman, Tony, who handled both the punting and the kicking duties, especially the fact that he made eight out of nine from past 40 yards, which is incredibly valuable in the Ivy League. Talk more about your special teams this year. No, I mean, you, you said it right. I mean, that was a huge element for us in our success this season was that we were very good on special teams. And, you know, I think the credit goes to Steve Ashlaw, special teams coordinator, and Saitu Smith, who, you know, who worked side by side with Steve on our return game. And, um, and, and guys like Jack and Ryan and the guys on our return teams, and coverage teams. I mean, our kids are so bought into special teams because they understand how important that, you know, that field position is, that, that yardage is in games. And, and Jack really grew as a player. I mean, he had a great spring. Um, he had an incredible summer, um, came back. and You could see as the season grew. And, you know, I think one of the, you know, Ben Mann, our snapper, and then Seamus Florio, who's one of our kickers, who's our holder. And, um, you know, that, that battery was so, so, uh, it was so smooth and flawless. And, um, you know, Jack was, like you said, I mean, he was almost, you know, damn near 100% from, you know, from long range. And I had so much confidence in him there. And I put him in some, you know, I put him in some tough situations. And, um, you know, he, he came through time and time again. And, uh, you know, I'm just so excited for him to have another year with him and see him continue to grow this offseason. Tony, before we let you go, remind our listeners, how, how can they stay up to date with you and the program and follow you, whether it's online or it's on social media? Sure. I mean, I think the, the best way for us, I mean, obviously our, our uh, website, our flagship website for free athletics is yellbulldogs.com. And if you're going to follow us um, on social media, whether that be Twitter or Instagram, um, you know, Yale football. Um, and then, you know, my, I, I have a, I only manage a Twitter account for me. So it's at coach Reno um, at yeah, coach Reno Yale. So, but um, the Yale football sites um, are great on social media. Um, we, we, we pretty much posting things on those at least, you know, four or five days a week of videos or, um, or updates on the team. Um, it gives you a great opportunity to, to keep up with the kids. Well, coach, we can't thank you enough for taking time out of your night to come back and be a part of the show. We hope you'll continue to do it and keep us up to date. You're fantastic. And we're oh, rooting hard for you. Yeah. Same here, guys. I, I really appreciate all you do for Connecticut sports and specifically for Yale football. So. Um, it's always an honor to be on with you guys. And thanks again. Look forward to uh, the future future times we can get on and have yourself a great night. Talk soon. Take care, Tony. All the best to you and your family. Good night. Yep. Bye, guys. Thank you. That is the great Tony Reno. Bob, what an unbelievable year they had this year. Another conference title, coach of the year, rookie of the year. So many good things happening with that program. And it all starts with Tony. Oh, you can see the way he talks. Chris, he's, he's calm, but there's a fire there. I've been on the field with him before games. He gets up, but he doesn't get too up. You know what I mean? He's He's got that quiet confidence. Uh, he's cool under pressure, and he gets that over to his players, and that's what makes him a great coach. Indeed, no doubt. Looking forward to catching up with Coach again uh, next season. Thanks for keep continuing to bring him back, Bob. He's fantastic. All right, we've got our next guest, Eddie Kettison, hanging on the line. We're going to get to, Ken, uh, to get to Eddie right on the other side of this real quick station break. 
You're listening to Thursday Night Tailgate with Chris Mascaro and Bob Lazari, where NFL legends live on. Back to you, boys. All right, now back in making his 14th appearance with us here on Thursday Night Tailgate is TNT Guest Hall of Famer, Louisiana Sports Hall of Famer, State of Missouri Sports Hall of Famer, and former Rams, Saints, Bears, Broncos, and Chiefs wide receiver Eddie Kennison. Eddie first joined us on this show on episode number six back on October 27th of 2011. So 14 appearances over 11 years. You can see how much Eddie means to us. He was a great player in both college at LSU and in the NFL. Here are just a few of his highlights at LSU. Caught a pass at least once in each of his 30 last 31 regular season games there. He was a two-time recipient of the AT&T Long Distance Award in 1994 in particular for his 100-yard punt return against Mississippi State. He was also a member of LSU's 4x100-meter relay team that finished second in the nation in the national championship in 1995, and he was a four-time All-American in track. In the NFL with the Chiefs, Eddie still ranks 10th all-time in receiving yards and 11th in receiving touchdowns with KC. Recently celebrated a milestone birthday, and we're thrilled to use back with us again tonight here on Thursday Night Tailgate. Hey, Eddie, Chris, and Bob, happy belated Eddie. birthday, my friend. <laughs> Brother, I, I, if, I wish I could. Uh, thank you for that. I wish I could have you guys be my alarm clock in the morning. And just, <laughs> just, 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 just hearing your beautiful voices, man, not so much uh, as my stats or anything, but just to hear you guys' voice. Oh, brother, 14 times, man. I didn't realize that it's been that many times. But thank you guys for inviting me back on. It's always a pleasure to talk with you guys. You oh, too, appreciate Eddie. you, Eddie. So, Eddie, I, I bet at 50 years old, you can still run a sub-5 40-yard dash. Am I wrong? <laughs> You're not wrong at all. If, ah, that's right. If, if you gave me about, about 45 to 50 minutes to stretch. <laughs> <laughs> Take your time. I, I, yeah, I, I'd have to take my time through. I could probably, I could probably put down a a, a, a low four five. There you go. I know yeah. that that begs the question: When Kansas City has a receiver go down, you need to keep the eighty seven dusted off and ready to go, right? <laughs> I, 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 think, I, I think you could still give them, a, you know, a quarter or two. Hey, I tell you what, uh, Chris and Bob, you know, uh, Travis Kelsey is doing the number eighty seven. All of the justice that we need for him to do, brother, but. If they wanted me to come back and put on like number zero or something, I can give them four plays per game right now. <laughs> and, and Love to see it. Yeah, that, that's one per quarter. And I'm going from the five-yard line in into the end zone, catch a five-yard hit for a touchdown. So I'm four for four with four touchdowns. There right you go. There. there you go. <laughs> So, Eddie, I want to get your thoughts, obviously, on the Chiefs. They've been in the AFC Championship game the last five consecutive years. This is their third Super Bowl in the last four years, now two Super Bowl titles. As I was saying to Bob at the top of the show, starting to feel a little Patriot-esque, like maybe there's a dynasty forming here. What are your thoughts? Well, you know, with uh, the, the dynasty uh, that Andy Reid has put together, and not just Andy Reid, we're talking about the, the Hunt family and you know, uh, Mark and, and Brett, you know, those guys putting a team together and putting their heads collectively together uh, to put a football team together. And, you know, if they put this this team together where these guys can win, uh, you know, multiple uh, Super Bowls and AFC championship games, 
uh, kind of like the Patriots did in their run, brother. Uh, I tell you what, uh, with the luck uh, of keeping our guys healthy, and in particular Patrick, you know, keeping him healthy, man, is key. And, uh, you know, who knows uh, what the future holds. But I tell you what, it, it definitely looks bright. So, Eddie, when you were watching the game, what stood out to you? Well, just the, the simple fact that uh, Patrick is able to, uh, you know, go into the Super Bowl after playing in the AFC Championship game on a hurt ankle. And, you know, the, the one thing that really stands out is that Patrick's, you know, his 60% is better than most guys, 90 to 95%. And, you know, that stands out uh, in true leadership, in true fashion of, of being, you know, a guy that played in the National Football League, you know, just understanding the dynamics of how hard it is to play on an ankle injury, and in particular, a high ankle injury, and just the way his mentality has been set, uh, you know, for the last five years in the National Football League, and he continues to prove that he is a leader and uh, he is a guy that the guys in the locker room want to play with and play for, uh, with him being a leader on that football field. Bob, questions for Eddie? Eddie, it's always a pleasure, and we're, we're going to stay right on that, the Super Bowl. I mean, Chris and I talked earlier, Eddie. I mean, everybody going into that game was, you know, talking about Casey offense and, you know, who's going to do what, who's going to do what. and Behind the scenes almost, it was like Reed knew that my offensive line has to protect him. And they did it like I've never seen it before, Eddie. Were you surprised how good Kansas City's offensive line was? Not at all. Uh, our offensive line, they played great all year. They played great, you know, the last five years. I know we've had a little movement, but understanding the dynamics of the offense, first and foremost. And then understanding their individual assignments and then understanding the full task at hand. And that's winning football games and protecting Pat and opening holes for, you know, our running backs uh, to go through. And then uh, giving Pat enough time to put the ball down the field. The entire game is has to be built around our offensive line. So, Bob, not at all shocked because uh, our offensive line have been playing great football for the last five years. And Eddie, I was thinking earlier, you know, some of the great receivers that have played this game like yourself and, and what goes into making a good receiver. And, you know, I, I kind of narrowed it down to three things. You know, obviously you have to be able to run routes. You have to have good hands. And I think you have to be able to run after the catch. Those things, routes, hands and yak. Do you have to have all three in order to be considered a, a real good receiver? The answer is yes. And, and uh, Bob, I'll, I'll add one component to that. You have to know what you're doing in the grand scheme of all three of those things. You can catch, you can run routes, and you can have yaks. But if you have no idea what you're doing or understanding the offense uh, and what they're trying to do in the offensive scheme, then it'll be tough to have those three. So I'll add you have to know what you're doing even before you step on the football field. So take that a step further, Eddie. What do you mean by that? What do you need to know? So it, it all starts in, in off-season conditioning, in training camp, understanding the playbook, understanding why a particular route was put in uh, to the system, and understanding why this route has to work or should work uh, you know, during the course of a game. 
and understanding what the defense is giving you to be able to run that route and uh, fully understand, you know, not only that route, but that particular route is setting up another route down the line during the course of the game. So you have to you have to be a student of the game uh, unless, you know, it'd be very tough for you to get on the field. Uh, so understanding and knowing the offense, first and foremost, uh, you have to you have to you have to understand the game. Eddie, much like when you were in Kansas City, they seem to be going after guys with lots of speed because it's hard to defend that. Is that the secret sauce for the Chiefs having so much team speed? Well, speed definitely is a major factor. I mean, anyone who doesn't have speed or want speed on their football team, it's just it's tough to make the defense be off balance the majority of the time. And and a, not only speed, you have to have a big guy like a Travis Kelsey in the middle. I was fortunate enough to play with Tony Gonzalez. So you need to have a big guy in the middle of the field to keep the defense honest. And you have to have fast guys on the outside to be able to stretch that defense and really, really keep them off balance. And Eddie, I've been talking all, all 11 years we've been doing this show, really, that I still think defense wins championships. I mean, the fumble return for a touchdown by Nick Bolton was one of the big plays of the game. Their adjustments at halftime, because they only gave up 11 points in the second half to the Eagles. I know they gave up 35 for the game, but it seemed like they did all the right things they needed to do at halftime. And they held the Eagles to 115 yards rushing when they were averaging nearly 150 for the regular season. The, the thing that the, that the Chiefs did in the second half, whatever that adjustment was, to me, as much as anything, that defense played a huge part in why they were able to come back and win that game. No question. And if you look over the, the last, you know, five years, and I'm going to just use the five years because that's so prevalent, Andy Reid and his coaching staff, they have been generals you know, five-star generals going in at halftime and making adjustments. We, we've seen it every single game. And if, if you're a true football fan, and in particular a Chiefs fan, you can see the adjustments that, that they make uh, at halftime. They go in and they settle down and they figure it out. And Andy Reid and his coaching staff, they're five-star generals when it comes to that. Eddie, the Eagles defensive back, Darius Slay, here's a guy who's a five-time pro bowler, including this season. When you were playing, if you were going up against a guy who was a multi-time pro bowler like Slay is, what are you doing leading up to the game, trying to figure out how you can get a leg up on him? <laughs> well, I played against guys like Dion. <laughs> so, I mean, to, to be uh, at the top of your game in the National Football League, uh, I would have to say, uh, that if you didn't go into every game, not just the guys who make the Pro Bowl, not the guys who are just the best, if you did not approach every week the same way, study your study habits, studying film, studying your playbook, uh, studying your opponent, each individual guy that you're going to play against, then you're doing yourself and your teammates a disservice. So it's not just the guys who make the Pro Bowl. You have to I approach, and I know a lot of guys on our team, when I play with the Chiefs, they approach the game with, with the sense of urgency that we have to be great on, on this week to get ready for Sunday. And there are no shortcuts. You know, the, the ultimate uh, 
uh, ideal in the National Football League, or I would say in any sport, but in particular National Football League, is winning the Super Bowl. And if you don't conduct yourself and you don't prepare yourself every week in such a way that you're going to win the Super Bowl, you're doing yourself and your team a disservice. Bob, more for Eddie? Uh, Eddie, uh, Chris and I agree that as good as the Chiefs were and are and have been, a guy like Isaiah Pacheco put them over the hump this year. Eddie, we do a segment on the show, Unsung Hero of the Week. And early in the year, we gave the award to him only because nobody really knew who he was at the time. People know who he is now big time. Um, I mean, the way he runs and the energy he brings, uh, it just seemed to energize that team and give them a toughness that they probably needed going into this season. Well, and I agree with that. And if I'll go back to your earlier question and statement about, uh, you know, how the Patriots, how they won so many Super Bowls with unsung heroes. You know, they had basically maybe one or two superstars on their football team. But as a coaching staff and as teammates, you see the guys that win these starting roles and you cheer them on and you you give them the football to build their confidence. And, you know, you know, you always hear the the the, the saying that guys say, uh, you know, everyone counted me out or everyone told me that I wasn't going to make it. And, you know, those are the stories that you hear all the time. And you and you see these guys come out and they want to perform and they want to do well because they had other people who that counted them out and they they have a chip on their shoulder. And good for those guys that that come out and play at a level like that and then see their teammates love on them and cheer them on. And when they do great, you see the guys jumping on them and, you know, they're just having fun. And I love seeing those, uh, those unsung hero stories. And uh, he was definitely one of them. And Eddie, I think we've asked you this before. We always like to know how off seasons were spent uh, by our guests, a guy like yourself, receiver, sprinter type guy, what would you normally be doing late February whether you were in the postseason or not, um, was it a busy offseason or was it rest time for you? Uh, well, if, if we were not in the postseason, then it was definitely uh, family time and rest time. Uh, I believe uh, every, every person, male or female, and it doesn't matter what your profession is, it doesn't have to be sports, you need some downtime, you need some rest time. And a lot of our time as professional athletes uh, uh, are away from our family. So I spent a lot of time uh, with my family, uh, with my boys and, um, and resting and letting my body, giving my body an opportunity to heal, you know, traveling and, you know, taking vacations where we can just put our feet up and be a family and, uh, and catch up. To that end, Eddie, how long did it take for your body to heal? I, I just picture trying to get up and down the stairs or walking around after a season of car collision after car collision out there on the field, that the body took a little bit of time before it stopped aching. How long did it take for you to recover? <laughs> Chris, I've been retired 15 years, brother. I think it's been 15 years. My body is still recovering. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt. I woke up this morning with back pain. <laughs> Eddie, with a, a quarter like a quarterback like Patrick Mahomes, he seems like a guy that you have to be on your toes, aware all the time 
because he can deliver the ball from so many different angles. He can be looking away from you and deliver the ball in your direction. He seems like a guy that, you know, you would really have to be paying attention 100% of the time, regardless of where he was on the field. Talk about what it would be like being uh, on the field with him as your quarterback. You know, I don't know if this uh, has ever been said, but I think of Patrick Mahomes as the Magic Johnson of the National Football League. Yeah, yeah. that's good. Brother, when I tell you, uh, if I had the opportunity to play with Patrick, I'm sure that I would be having just as much fun as the guys that are playing with him now. Uh, I would be having that, that exact same fun. Anybody, I'm sure that would have the opportunity and will have the opportunity to grace the field with Patrick and Travis Kelsey and, you know, Andy Reid is head coach. Those guys are going to have fun. And uh, as long as Pat can stay healthy and, uh, you know, he can still continue to do the things that he's been doing as a, as a top tier athlete, they will have fun for a long time, brother. Eddie, we've had the relaunch of the XFL this past weekend. You interested at all to see what they're doing? I, I, I saw a couple games this past weekend, and I had no idea that it was launching. And uh, and it's not any, I'm sure, not anything that they'd done. But I just hadn't, you know, turned the television on to like watch like regular TV. You know, I'm a, uh, I'm, you know, I have my nine-year-old son. I have him full-time, man. I'm a, I'm a single dad, so a lot of uh, my work and time is spent with him, his activities, homework, my work. Uh, so I don't get a lot of chance to watch television. And uh, I'm glad uh, that it has been relaunched because I'm sure that a lot of guys that doesn't have the opportunity to play in the National Football League, this is a great showcase for them uh, to be in, to potentially make it to the National Football League. So uh, I'm excited about it. Uh, I'm sure uh, that the games and everything that has happened, uh, it was pretty exciting. I haven't seen any highlights or anything, so I don't know. And I hope it was exciting uh, for the clubs who did play and for the fans who are watching. Bob, one more for Eddie before we let him go. Yeah, sure, Eddie. I mean, you mentioned playbooks before. And I was just thinking, I mean, you were privy to four or five different organizations and their playbooks, maybe even more due to coordinators changing and everything else. Are there basics to every playbook, Eddie, or were there some organizations where it's much tougher to learn than others? Uh, a few were. A little tougher um, just because of uh, terminology. People have, uh, you know, different names for different plays. The, the field doesn't change. The game of football doesn't change. You know, the field is 120 yards long. It's 53 and a half yards, sideline to sideline. That will never change. Just the terminology. So, yes, uh, a few clubs were a little bit more difficult to learn, but that's all right. That's part of the process. That's what we, that's what we ask for. Eddie, before we let you go, remind our listeners, how can they stay up to date with all the great things you're doing now, whether it's following you online or it's on social media? Yeah, brother. So my Instagram, it's uh, Eddie, I, 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 like Eddie the third. Uh, my Twitter is E Kennison, I, I, I. Uh, my Facebook is Eddie Kennison III, and uh, my LinkedIn is Eddie Kennison III. And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't post every day all the time, but when, I, when God gives me the, the urge to 
post some things, brother. I do it, but uh, I love to hear from uh, all of you guys as uh, listeners and uh, and connect with them any way that I can. Eddie, it's always such a joy having you as part of the show. I've got my Eddie Kennison Chiefs jersey on as we speak. Can't thank does, you Eddie. enough. <laughs> I can't thank you enough for uh, continuing to be, come back and be a part of the show. We we just love everything about you. Oh, brother, and I appreciate it. And uh, I know, know you guys got to go, but before I let you guys go, and if no one has told you guys today, let me be the first to tell both of you guys, man, I love you with the love of Christ. I'm so proud of the work that you guys have been putting in for as many years as, as you have. And uh, you've given not only me a voice just to come on and just talk sports and life, brother, uh, but you guys have uh, are genuine, and I love everything about you. So continue doing great work in what you do, guys. We appreciate that very Thanks much. Thanks so Eddie. much, Eddie. Eddie, yeah, take bro. care. All the best to you and your family. We'll catch up again soon. Talk soon. Sound good. Take care. That is the great Eddie Kennison, Bob. I tell you, it's just he's such a special man, and everything about him is fantastic. Um, it's just a joy every single time he has been a part of the show. And we are blessed that he has done it 14 times and been a part of the show over the 12 years we've been doing it. Yeah. I was just going to say, Chris, for 12 years, uh, we always, you know, it's kind of a cliche. We love all our guests, uh, but for, for Tony's appearance, uh, you know, for Eddie's appearances and uh, what he's done for the show and how he's kept in touch and what just, what's just what a fine man he is. Uh, I yes. always, you know, there's always a twinkle in my eye when you tell me he's coming on because, uh, you, you can't get more of a special human being than him. So, uh, not being dramatic folks, he's that kind of guy. And, uh, we already 100%. look forward to next year, Chris. Yeah. hundred percent for everything you just said. He's a, he's a special guy to us. We love him a lot. And, uh, hopefully we are blessed to have him back on the show again next season. All right, we've got our next guest, Kurt Bavakwa, hanging on the line. We're going to get to Kurt right on the other side of this real quick station break. Hear NFL legends, players, coaches, and media members from around the country sharing their insights and stories with us year-round. Here on Thursday night, tailgate, 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 tail, 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 tailgate. All right, now back with us is former Major League infielder Kurt Bavakwa. Let me remind you a little bit about Kurt's background. He is from Miami Beach, Florida. Played his college ball at Miami-Dade College. He was originally drafted by the Mets in the 32nd round in 1966 and the Braves in the sixth round of January's uh, 1967 secondary draft. Didn't sign with either of those teams, but he did sign with the Cincinnati Reds, who selected him in the 12th round of the secondary draft in June of 1967. Traded to the Cleveland Indians in 1971 and made his Major League debut in June of that year. Earned the nickname Dirty Kurt for regularly having the dirtiest uniform on every team he played for. He played in the major leagues from 1971 to 1985 for the Indians, Royals, Pirates, Brewers, Rangers, and Padres. Helped the Padres make it to the World Series in 1984 and had a couple of really big home runs in that series. And we are honored. He is back with us again tonight here on Thursday Night Tailgate. Hey, Kurt, Chris, and Bob, thanks for coming back, back on the show. How are you guys? Boy, Eddie's a tough act to follow. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> yeah. Wow. But we're glad it's you that gets to follow him. Kurt, how have you been? Everything is, is so good. I, I certainly appreciate you giving me the opportunity to come back on your show. Your show's doing just fabulous. Thank you very much, Kurt. 
So I, I want to start our time with you tonight, Kurt. Get your thoughts on the Padres. They've had a very busy and very expensive offseason. What do you think about what they've done? Well, I think anybody that's a Padre fan has got to be excited going into the season. You got, uh, you know, not only the addition of Bogarts, but, you know, you got Machado coming off a great year and showing what kind of a leader he is. Um, you've got a guy that stepped up a little bit and has some Kim, uh, which I tell you what, he showed me, uh, that he could be an everyday player. Uh, you know, whether that remains to be the case for the, uh, for the entire year remains to be seen, but, you know, he will start out the season as a second baseman with Jake Cronenworth over at first, um, Bogarts at, at shortstop and, uh, and of course, Manny Machado at third. Uh, Fernando Tatis is due to be back into the lineup on the 20th of April uh, after he misses the first 20 games of the season. I find it quite interesting that Major League Baseball has a rule that even though a player is suspended, they're able to participate in spring games. Yeah, isn't I, that interesting? I don't ever... Re- it it really is. I don't I don't ever recall uh, seeing that before. And and when I found out, I was happy, uh, mainly because the Padres have a few guys uh, that are going to play in the WBC, and it's not going to give allow the ch- the fans a chance to see these guys in the spring because they're going to be on teams that I think are going to extend their way into. Uh, the WBC tournament, and I'm talking to the Dominican Republic in particular, and it's going to give them an opportunity to see a real star in Tatis. And boy, there, I think there are people that are leaving a lot on the table when it comes to Tatis's ability, and they're they're not sure how he's going to return, and they think that maybe the cream that he was putting on himself um, is going to make a big difference in his power and the kind of player that he was. And I just say nonsense. Uh, Fernando Tatis is going to be the same type of player that not only fans in San Diego saw for the first two years of his career, but also the fans across the uh, the baseball world. And Kurt, you, you talk about Tatis and, and Machado. The Padres got a lot of $20 million a year plus players. And those guys, plus Soto, plus Bogars, plus Joe Musgrove. You Darvish is just a little bit shy of that. They're spending a lot of money. It seems like they're sort of putting all their chips in to win a World Series in the next couple of years. Is it sort of World Series championship or bust right now? No, I wouldn't say it's a World Series championship or bust, but I, I can tell you one thing, uh, and Peter Seidler said it. He goes, I can't take it with me. Uh, <laughs> you know, here's a guy that the, the fans of San Diego should love. I mean, Peter Seidler is, is spending his money and the investors' money, the owners of this baseball team's money, and they're really making a huge difference in uh, the way baseball looks at contracts. I mean, everybody's making a big deal about Machado announcing that he was going to play out his option this year, and everybody's freaking out because they think that that means he's going to leave. That. Folks, that's not, if you're listening and you're a Padre fan or you're a baseball fan, that's not what it means. It means that he doesn't want to think about his, you know what? 
I actually think his timing sucked. I don't think he should have made an announcement. I don't think Manny Machado needed to say anything. I would have liked to have seen him just go into spring training, put together a great year. I expect this ball club to not only compete in the National League West, but I really and truly think that this ball club is going to win the National League West this year and unseat the Los Angeles Dodgers with their string of National League West titles. And Kurt, you talk about Machado and playing it out, and you know he's rumored to want a you know a ten year, four hundred million dollar contract. When you look back on your career, can you believe guys are you know getting contracts for four hundred million dollars based on what you guys were making? <laughs> you know, I remember my first three year deal with Texas, and I got a little under that four hundred <laughs> number. A little bit. Uh, it was, but it was four hundred thousand, <laughs> and it was a three. It was a three-year contract, and I thought I was stealing money. I mean, I you know I was so elated and so happy uh, signing that contract that year. You know, from guys that are old school, I, I consider myself in that bunch now uh, because of the length of time that's gone by since we played. I, you know, I don't remember when gas was 49 cents a gallon either. And I don't remember when a Corvette was 4,500 bucks, <laughs> but you know what? That's what they were back then. And that's, that's what a gallon of gas cost back then. So, you know, as much as you say, wow, that's, that's a lot. I don't think man and looking for 10 years for 400 million. I don't think that puts too much pressure on Manny Machado. If, if, as a matter of fact, the reason that I thought he made a mistake was that if Manny Machado doesn't go out and have the kind of year that he had last year and the San Diego Padres don't do as well as people expected, he, it's hard to walk away from a $150 million contract for five years. And, and that's what he'll be walking away from. And for a player to do that takes a lot of guts. He's got to be awful sure of himself. But I think he's looking at this ball club, and he believes in himself so much that he was willing to do that. Bob, questions for Kurt? Yeah, Kurt, it's always great to speak with you. And, you know, having said you're old school, and I put myself in that same boat, I mean, it's, it's become more difficult for me to watch the game because it's becoming more one-dimensional uh, as far as offensive players. You know, I'm just – I have my – your stats in front of me, and I'm looking at the fact that, you know, you had sacrifices. You didn't strike out much. It's the, it, That seemed to matter to guys back. And I know the game has changed and it's played differently, but when you see guys that are fundamentally not good and, uh, you know, swinging for the fences totally – Kurt, it's it's like watching to me. It's like watching home run derby every night. It gets old to me. Didn't you used to love home run derby? <laughs> well, when it was... I remember tuning in. I remember tuning into that when I was a kid. I just couldn't wait to watch that. Exactly. But yeah, the game has changed. The game has changed so much. I mean, they're implementing rules this year to keep the game the same way that they changed it to. And when I say that they, I'm talking about Manfred. But you know what? The Players Association is allowing this stuff. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, they're they're doing away with the shift uh, to try to add a little bit more offense, and they're they're going to. Uh, they're going to help a lot of left-handed hitters get a few more base hits and incre- and put their average up from 206 to 209. <laughs> and yeah. they're they're going to allow guys to steal a few more bases. They're going to. Uh, I'm anxious to see, and I'm I'm really not looking forward to it because I think at times it's going to make a joke of the game. Uh, but pitchers are going to get caught uh, with that number of times that they can go over the first place or first base. And then if they do it again and they don't pick the runner off, it's a balk. You know, I, I don't like that rule. I don't, I want to speed the game up just like anybody else, but you know what? When I'm a family and I see families walk into the ballpark and I know that they're going to spend at least four or $500 to walk into the ballpark. What the hell's wrong? with them spending three and a half or four hours at the ballpark. I just, I, I, you know, I, I loved the Jim Cott games and the Randy Jones games when I was a player because I wanted to get in and out and go out and have fun. But you know what? As a fan, I want those guys to play. I want to see extra innings. I don't think the extra inning rule should have got, uh, should have been played uh, into the 10th inning. I, th- I, I think it should have been, maybe put in the 11th or 12th inning because there's a lot of games. I think it's like 60 some percent of games that go into extra innings are ended in. And I'm not talking about with a man on second are ended in the 10th inning. So why couldn't they just go and, uh, and think about, you know, statistics. I mean, that's what they look at uh, with analytics and sabermetrics and everything now. So why couldn't the powers that be, and I'm talking about Manfred and the MLB people in the offices there, say, you know what, let's just, let's go in the 12th inning for a man on second. That's going to save the pitching staff. That's going to keep, uh, keep a game within five hours. And we'll keep, we'll keep it out of the game in the postseason. But it's hard to have something in my mind that is part of the game for 162. And then as soon as the postseason rolls around, it's not there anymore. I don't like right. that. Agreed. And, and, and Kirk, correct me if I'm wrong here. Uh, you mentioned the shift. I mean, so basically what they're telling teams and scouts and front offices, basically if you do your homework and scouting and everything and you play guys where you know they probably would, you're going to be penalized now. We can't do that. So they're rewarding guys who can't go the other way uh, with, with not allowing a shift now. Am I missing something here? No, you're not missing anything at all. And it, it, it bothers me, but uh, let's face it. You know what? They're, we're starting to see a little bit of a turnaround when it comes to 100% analytics. We're, we're starting to see more people say, and when I say more people, I'm talking about the people in the front office that are a combination of old school and analytics, new analytics, which I think we all agree. New analytics is great. I mean, if I can throw something in a computer and spit out information that I didn't have before I put it in the computer, why not use it? But when I see a player on a tablet, as soon as he 
makes an out or strikes out in an at bat and he goes back to the bench and he starts studying everything. I don't think that's the time to do that. I think the time to do that is when the game's over and before the game the next day. But when it comes to this shift thing, you're still going to see shifts. I tell you what, if I'm a major league manager, I'm bringing in one of my outfielders. If I got a guy hitting, that's just a crazy, like a monthly, you know, Max Muncy, although he runs a little better than average from average to a little bit better. Uh, I bring in one of the outfielders because Mac Munce, Max Muncy's not going to pound the ball into the left field corner. And I don't have to worry about that. So I can move my outfielders over as long as my infielders are on the right side of second base and their feet are on the dirt. I can move my outfield anywhere I want to. That's where the shift differences are going to be. There's going to watch what Buck Joe Walter does this year with shift. I can't wait to watch the Mets play the first few games of the season. And Kurt, we're, we're talking about the game now where it's like Bob talked about home run derby or, or, or guys are striking out left and right. Do you think even with all these rules changes, can the hitters change? Can they become more line drive hitters, more dink and dunk hitters? Uh, to me, you're going to do all this stuff with all these rules. Guys are still going to swing for the fence and the guys are still going to strike out. I don't know that the putting the defense any, any other way, any other alignment, all that sort of stuff is going to make a lick of difference because guys are just swinging for the fences and they swing really hard and they hope the ball gets in the way. Well, uh, you know, that's going to remain uh, the part of the game that's been in existence for the last seven, eight, nine years. Right. I mean, it's a whole, yeah. I mean, you're talking about a a whole era of ball players. You know, there's not one, one guy on a major league roster right now, not one that has ever sat in a strike. Yeah. These guys. And so I'm pointing that out. I'm pointing that out because, you know, the last strike is in 1994. Right. You know, that that's almost 30 years ago. Right. Most of these kids weren't so even born. They've had not. Right. Not only have they had peace, but these guys, when they were locked out last year, they didn't know what the hell was going on. <laughs> and they, and they still don't when it comes to negotiation, a collective bargaining agreement. I tell you what, I saw something today or it might've been yesterday where Rob Manfred said something along the lines of he's putting a team together to look into the possibilities of a salary cap. Oh, please. All right. Rob, Rob Manfred is starting to negotiate with Tony Clark already for the next collective bargaining agreement. This guy, even though he's a even though he's a pain in the ass <laughs> and there's a lot of people that don't, don't necessarily think he's doing the best job for the game of baseball. He is a good negotiator and he's kicked Tony Clark's butt uh, for a good period of time now. And everybody in baseball knows it. Uh, you know, Tony Clark and the players gave it a kind of a look at, you know, we kind of won last year. 
I don't know if they won as much as they stayed even, an even keel. But with that, I just look at Rob Manfred and the owners putting themselves in a position and negotiate something else because they know that the players will never stand for salary cap. It'll never happen. I hope it does. That's what the game needs. I mean, you know, Kurt, well, I don't know if you remember. You know what? But it, I, go ahead. I'm no, sorry. I was just, just going to say, you know, I don't know if you remember, but you know, I'm, I'm from Pittsburgh. I grew up a huge Pirates fan. That's when I got to know you as a ball player, who you were and all of that sort of thing, you know, in the, in the seventies and, you know, Pirates are never, ever going to compete unless they just get lucky and they catch lightning in the bottle like they did back in, you know, 2013, 14, 15, when they had Garrett Cole and those guys. I mean, they're not going to, you know, they'll, they'll compete every once in a blue moon. And without a salary cap and without a, you know, and, and I think that along with a cap, they need a floor so that, you know, the Pirates are forced to act that actually have to pay whatever it is, 100 million, 125, whatever they put the floor at. But there's just so many teams that are just not going to be able to compete. It's silly to even have them in the league. All they are is like a 4A team, you know, get, getting ready to, you know, give their, their, their stars get good. They're, they're going to get traded at the, at the, uh, all-star break or at the trading deadline. And, and they're going to start all over again. I mean, I, I just, the game needs something. It can't, I don't think it can continue on this way or it does it needs to purge about a half dozen teams so the san diego ball club's probably going to spend about 230 million dollars this year and the los angeles dodgers are probably probably right around that number and so are the uh, the mets and uh and the phillies are pretty close so what if they had a salary cap of 175 180 million you, you're talking about the Pittsburgh Pirates, the Oakland A's, where they are right now, the right. Kansas City Royals, Cincinnati Reds. They're at somewhere between 40 and 70 million. Right. Do you actually think they're going to, do you think if with the salary cap, they're going to spend another $100 million? No, that's why if I said those that. Owners they, are gotta, cheap. they need a seal. They need a floor, right? You got to, you got to spend at least X and no more than Y. You can't be just, you know, you can spend 30 million like the pirates are going to spend. Well, you know, I am as much as some of the salaries are crazy. I see how they're structuring these deals now so that the average medium for the particular years that the ball player is going to be under contract um, is less than it normally would because the contract is no, is longer and it helps the clubs with the salary cap numbers. But it, as big as these contracts are, and you know, just like all of us, that we would have loved to have made that kind of money or some something anywhere near it. I am never going to call for somebody that wants to spend more money on another person for whatever kind of job that they do and not, not say to the guy that walks into this restaurant that I just came out of and the guy's a great cook and the, the union for the cooks is going to say, well, we got a salary cap of 150,000 a year. 
So even though you think this guy's worth 300, you can't pay him that much. I think it's nonsense. So I, I'll never agree on a salary cap. Uh, I don't think, I don't think there's a lot of players that ever will. Uh, certainly, and, and there's only a handful. I mean, we're not talking about very many guys here that are worth the kind of money that we're talking about that calls for salary cap to be in the conversation. So I think it's nonsense. I really do. Yeah, that's a tough one for me, Kurt. I mean, I, and I get what you're saying yeah, you know, it, about, you know, hey, you should be able to pay whatever you want to pay for the talent that you want to pay for it. And 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 certainly and 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 that's the way it goes, I, I think, in, in the majority of the business world. I think it's tough when you're talking about sports and you want to have competitive teams that there's there's a handful that can compete every year. You know, the Dodgers, the Padres have gotten themselves in there. The Padres weren't always there. Right. And they they struggled for a long time until new ownership came around. And maybe that's what you need. You've got to be able to you know look at into the bank and say, you know, hey, are you going to really spend the money? That to make this team competitive, or are you just coming in for the revenue sharing and you're going to run it, you know, like a, a corner drugstore? I, I think there's just got to be something for for these teams. Or, you know, the bottom line is, and I love the Pirates and I'm from Pittsburgh and all of that. You gotta you gotta tell the Pirates and the A's and some of these teams, you know what? It's just you're not you're not competitive. You're, you're winning between fifty and sixty two games a year. You know. It's really not fair to your fans. It's time to close up shop because that's, I think that's just the reality of the economics of the game. The, the large market teams are going to be there every year. They're going to spend their money. They've got bigger deals with their TV deals and all of that sort of thing. You know, as, as you can imagine, you know, the, the TV deal in Pittsburgh is nowhere near the TV deal in Chicago, New York, Boston, LA, San Diego, maybe. It's just, it's just not. Well, I mean, I don't know why uh, San Diego's market is so much bigger than Pittsburgh's uh, when it comes to television revenue. But I think the owners share some TV revenue. But uh, I think that there's nice checks uh, that the owners of each major league team are getting every year that we don't even know about. Oh, for sure. I'm uh, with you there. You know, M- MLBAM uh, is paying the owners a tremendous amount of money every year for their streaming services and uh, their licensing deals and all of that stuff uh, that they have up and down uh, every inch of every marketplace that the players get very little, if not any of. And, uh, you know, the owners are sharing that. Those owners, I'm never going to feel sorry uh, for somebody that's worth a billion and a half dollars and that has a ball or has a ball club that's worth a billion and a half dollars or more, uh, owns a major league baseball team and doesn't want to put the profits that he's making from that major league baseball team back into it because that's what these guys are doing. Right. They're not spending the profits that they're making. Other teams are. Yep. And those are the teams that you're talking about. Yeah, the teams that draw three mil. You know, San Diego is going to draw three million people this year. There's no, I don't think there's any doubt about it. The Los Angeles Dodgers continually draw three million people. The Mets, they're probably going to draw three. I, I, I'm, I'm really anxious to see what happens in the National League East 
in the National League West this year. I think it's going to be really exciting. I can't wait to see what Bruce Bochy does with the Texas Rangers uh, over in the American League. Uh, I can't uh, wait to see how the Boston Red Sox are going to stumble and fall again on their face <laughs> with the ownership group that they have. Uh, it's just a damn shame. But the people of Philadelphia should be happy because of that ownership group there. Uh, the people in uh, in in New York naturally are uh, are elated with uh, with Cohen and the amount of money that he has to spend. I mean, he Steve Cohen's got stupid money. I mean, let's face it. He 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 has more money than uh, than a lot of the owners want to spend. But I tell you what, a lot of these owners, as crazy as it sounds, a guy like Siler won't let a guy like Cohen push him around. And that's where some of these salaries get pumped up. I mean, look what happened to Correa. Correa's deal is kind of an iffy deal. Yeah. I'm wondering what the heck happened in that deal. I think those guys came back and said, you know, this is just too much money. Carlos, there's nothing wrong with Carlos Correa's ankle. I don't know what the hell these guys are talking about. They, if you took an x-ray of a guy's ankle that's been broken, it's probably going to look funky. And the doctor that looks at it says, wait, wait a minute. This guy can't possibly, this guy never watched a baseball game in his life that said Carlos Correa's ankle is bad. Carlos Correa has a bad back. That's what's holding him back is his yeah. back. It's not his ankle. And nobody's ever talked about that. Interesting. Carlos Correa used to carry his, uh, carry around, not literally, but lug around with him his chiropractic team that never worked on him in the clubhouse, in the training room of the clubhouse. Really? All the work was done on Carlos Correa in the hotel or an offsite. Wow. Okay. Bob more for Kurt. Yeah, Kurt. I just, um, I've been asked this question a lot and you're a great guy to talk to this about. And today is uh, Alan Trammell's 65th birthday, a Hall of Famer. Uh, Hall of Fame, just your whole, your whole attitude about the voting now and who gets in. To me, it's the Hall of Very Good now. You know, when I think of Hall of Famers when I was a kid, you know, guys like Aaron Mays, Ruth Garrett, they were no-brainers. If you have to think about it, you probably shouldn't get in. But a guy like Trammell, like today's his birthday, looking at his stats, Kurt, I mean, 285 lifetime, not 300 home runs, not 1,000 RBIs, a very good player, but he got in. Now, you have to put a guy like Whitaker in. If you put him in, I looked at his stats, they're good or even better. Um, you know, when you open that door, Kurt, it just seems like it's just a flood now. you got to let these guys in that were just very good players. Well, that I think you hit the nail on the head. Because uh, I don't, we're probably going back 15 years now when it all started, 15, 20, maybe, where a couple of guys eked in. And then, yeah. uh, you know, I hate to talk about guys that have been elected into baseball's Hall of Fame because it's such a supreme honor. Because all of the guys that are in the Hall of Fame, I know personally, mm -hmm. and I'll never say anything bad about a ball player that put up the numbers that you threw out with Alan Trammell, because I know how hard the game is. 
But I think you're right. I think you hit the nail on the head. The Baseball Hall of Fame should not be the Hall of Good. or You know, it's got to be great to be able to get inducted into uh, Cooperstown. Uh, you've got to be a great player. And the names that you threw out there, uh, the guys like Nolan Ryan and George Brett and, and those kind of players uh, from our era and even uh, – Boy, I, you know what? I don't, I don't even know a lot of guys that have been elected recently that, uh, that I was so excited about, uh, that got in. Um, I, but like I said, uh, these guys deserve it because they got elected, but now they've made it a, a circus. Uh, they've made it somewhere to be. They put it on, uh, television for hours and hours and hours because of the MLB network, uh, they've got to fill that, that space. And a lot of it's being done with talk about the hall of fame. I mean, they're already talking about it. As soon as it's over, they're talking about next year. Uh, those guys need stuff to talk about. They got a lot of time to fill on that network. Uh, and right. it's, uh, it's, it's not an easy thing. Hey, Kurt, one last one from me. I mean, as far as your own career, when it ended in 85, uh, you were still playing at a decent level in a utility role, valuable to any team that would have you. Uh, was it your decision to end at age 38? Do you think it could have gone longer? Did you want to go longer? Well, I hit um, a little over 340. Uh, in spring of 1986. Mm -hmm. And as a, matter, as a matter of fact, my last swing as a professional athlete uh, was a game-winning uh, single to left field off the San Francisco Giants because Roger Craig walked the guy to get in front of me. Mm -hmm. And after the game, he walked by me and he said, I walked that guy because I knew you'd win the game and we'd get out of here. <laughs> so he... So he, uh, you know, Roger knew me a little bit. I got to be uh, a pretty damn good pitch hitter the last uh, seven or eight, nine years of my career. I kind of yes. knew how to approach it. Uh, I knew how to wrap my arms around it. Uh, I knew what to expect when I went up there. Uh, and I wasn't griping and moaning about not being in the lineup. You know, I knew my place on the ball club. But I got caught up in the collusion. Um, you know, I was one of those guys. Um, you know, the, the, uh, the Los Angeles Dodgers and, uh, the Cincinnati Reds were interested in signing me along with, uh, with the San Diego Padres and they were told to back off really? and it's, it's in, oh yeah, it's in the collusion paper too. How, how would have that have been? I could have played on Los Angeles Dodgers with my buddy, Tommy. Uh, wow. <laughs> wow. That, he was that, still the manager. Yeah. I can't imagine you in Dodger blue. <laughs> <laughs> I can't, I can't either. But in retrospect, uh, I, I tell you what, when I saw it printed in the collusion paperwork uh, that I was sent by the players association that the Los Angeles Dodgers and the Cincinnati Reds had interest in me uh, and were, were basically told that, you know, he can't be talked to uh, because 
you know, I was with, I had played out my option with the San Diego Padres. And the one thing that hurt me, and I think hurt a lot of us that year, was the Players Association agreed with the owners that if a free agent didn't sign by November, I think 15th, that they couldn't sign until May 1st. Wow. So in other words, they were going to miss the first month or so of the season. Yeah. Yeah. You, you can't be a utility type player and afford to do that. Bob Boone got away with that in the collusion because the Phillies could afford or the, uh, he might've been with Anaheim at the time, uh, could afford not to have a Bob Boone for a week or a month of the season. And then they were, they were going to look forward to this kind of guy being able to come in and, and take care of the catching duties. But it, it was a rule that the players association accepted that hurt certain guys. And I was in that category. Kirk, just a couple more before we let you go. And I got to, go back into your career talking about the hall of fame you played with dave parker parker is a guy that i always felt like deserved an opportunity to get into the hall of fame i mean obviously he's had an opportunity he's been on the ballot but i i, I thought he was he was a generational player in the late 70s and then into the 80s when he played for the reds and the a's and the and the brewers and some of the other teams that he got an opportunity to play for later in his career but you saw him early in his career. You saw what he what he could do. What was you, what's your opinion of Parker? And is he a guy who deserves more consideration for the Hall? Well, anybody that didn't vote for and and hasn't voted for Dave Parker for the Hall of Fame didn't watch him play because Dave Parker, just like you said, was a generational player. Uh, he was one of those guys where when I walked into the clubhouse and saw Dave Parker for the first time. I went, whoa. I go, what in the hell is going on? I mean, this guy was a specimen. I mean, he and the greatest, one of the greatest individuals that you'll ever meet. I love Dave Parker. Absolutely love him. As a matter of fact, I called Parkway about two or three months ago, and I told him that I loved him. Because I know that, I don't know, I, I, I hope he's around for another 10 years. But I don't know if he's going to be uh, because of the disease that's affecting him right now. Right. Uh, I mean, I wish him all the best. And I didn't call him saying, hey, Dave, I know you're on your deathbed. I just wanted him to know that there was somebody out there that was a teammate that uh, really appreciated not necessarily his ball playing, but him as a person. And it's not because he went to church every day. And it's not because he held meetings before the game and, uh, you know, you know, applauded all guys that were out there on the team uh, and, and captain the ball club. It was just because of the kind of person that he is and was when he was a teammate. Uh, and you know what? Willie Stargell falls into that category also. Uh, people ask me my favorite teammates. And boy, I love Bruce Bochy. He was one of my favorite teammates. I love Richie Zisk when I was with the Pirates. But my two favorite teammates 
were Willie Stargell and Dave Parker. Two of my favorites. Pops was my hero growing up. Boy, he was, what a great guy. Kurt, one more before we let you go and, and uh, sticking with the Pirates. You played for Danny Murtaugh. He was the manager in Pittsburgh when, when you went there for your first go-round. Chuck yes. Tanner there, your second time as, as a Pirate. Talk about playing for those two guys. Well, I mean, I was really excited about going going over to Pittsburgh. Uh, you know, I had come from the American League uh, and going back to the National League. You know, at that time, there was a difference between the American League and the National League. Not only was there a strike zone difference, but there was a difference on how the players in the National League took the field. You know, they were proud to be National Leaguers. And it was fun going back to Pittsburgh, unfortunately for me. Uh, it just didn't work out both times that I was in Pittsburgh. Certainly, uh, the second time I went there with Chuck Tanner, uh, Chuck Tanner was not an extra man's manager. Uh, he was a star manager. Chuck Tanner could manage stars. He didn't know how to take care of the rest of the 20 guys on the roster and make them feel wanted, make them feel like they were a part of the team. Unfortunately, that's my feelings about Chuck Tanner. Great guy, just not a good leader as far as I was concerned. What about Murtaugh? Danny Murtaugh was just a, he was just a, a dirt dog. He was an old school kind of manager. I mean, the kind, you know, when you think about old school managers, you, you know, you think about Fred Hutchinson and Dave Bristol and Sparky Anderson when he first started with the Reds. Uh, you know, got, got Casey Stangle. I mean, you know, these guys are old school kind of managers that was Danny Murtaugh and you know the first time I took the field in Pittsburgh you know he he let everybody on the field know that hey guys this club's about swinging that lumber you pitchers shag let the hitters do their thing that was Danny Murtaugh's <laughs> idea about a baseball team he just he let the pitchers go out if they could go out and uh, and hold the opposition to three, four, five runs, he was good because he knew the Pirates were going to score. Kurt, before we let you go, remind our listeners what you're doing now and how they can stay up to date with you and follow you, whether it's online or it's on social media. Well, I appreciate that. You know, my as a matter of fact, uh, I've got Ellen Adair coming up. If you don't know who she is, you got to listen to my podcast. Uh, look for it on YouTube. Uh, Dirty Kurtz Dugout, and uh, Ellen Adair is an actress, and she's going to be on my podcast for the season opener on Thursday. Uh, I don't know when it'll drop into YouTube and the rest of the podcast stations, but uh, you're going to be surprised as to the reason I have this gal on my show this week. Wow. Okay. Look forward to that. Kurt? It is so much fun every time you're a part of the show. We we love getting to talk baseball with you and love hearing your stories and getting your insights for what's going on around the game now. We hope we're blessed enough to be able to catch up with you later in the season. Well, absolutely. Anytime. 
you would like it. Let's uh, let's do it. We can follow up on the National League East and uh, and the National League West and throw in the rest of baseball because I know we uh, we kind of highlighted those two divisions. Yeah. Kurt, take care. All the best to you and your family. We look forward to catching up with you again fun, soon. Kurt. I appreciate it. Thank you, guys. We'll talk to you soon. Good night. See you, Kurt. That is Kurt Bavacqua. And, and Bob, you know, when I think about him and, and what he's done over the course of his career, obviously played for a lot of different teams, played in the league for a long time. That The dirty Kurt piece, and again, don't, don't confuse with him being a dirty player. Kurt was the guy that was going to slide and get his uniform dirty, and he did so every day that he played. And that's what I loved about him. Not, not, you know, for, for the majority of his career, he was a utility guy, but he got his uniform dirty all the time later in his career. And he talked about this. He became one of the best pinch hitters in the game because he was able to get locked in and certainly did a heck of a job for the Padres in that 84 World Series. I was rooting hard for those guys. I wish they had won, but, um, just a, a wonderful ball player and an old school guy. And that means a lot to you and me. Yeah, Chris, again, there was a reason why he stuck around 15 years. Uh, the whole dirty Kurt, you're right. It's because of the way he approached the game, showed up every day, fundamentally sound, uh, no nonsense, had a lot of fun playing baseball, but and very versatile, Chris. I mean, a guy that could play three or four positions, he knew that between, you know, moving around the diamond and pinch hitting and doing it consistently was going to keep him around, and it did. I mean, he almost played till he was 40 years old, which is amazing. Uh, but he has as many stories as any guy we've ever talked to. So uh, we'll always, uh, we'll never be, have a shortage of stories with him. And he's always a true joy when he comes on. Yeah, he is. All right. When Bob and I come back, we'll be turning on our Thursday night tailgate spotlight on the positive one more time this season. We'll do that right on the other side of this real quick station break. Thursday Night Tailgate, where the spotlight is always on the positive. Tune in Thursday night from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time to hear your favorite NFL legends, players, and coaches sharing their stories. Now back to Chris and Bob. I wouldn't joke about anything else that happened to you tonight. All right, we are back here on Thursday Night Tailgate, turning on our spotlight on the positive. Bob, who are you putting your spotlight on tonight? Now, Chris, you know, I mean, first of all, we got to give a shout out to Dak Prescott, who won the Walter Payton Award, uh, Man of the Year Award this year. As you know, most of every week we featured uh, guys who were nominated for that award, and Dak did win it a couple weeks ago, so shout-out to him. But I figured I'd keep a local tonight and wanted to give a shout-out to Saquon Barkley of the Giants, Chris. Uh, you know, number one on the field, as you know, when he stays healthy, he, he's a, definitely a force to be reckoned with. He finally did this year. And you saw them get into the playoffs. I mean, that team goes with Barkley. He's that much of a threat and uh, valuable on the field. But when you look at what he's done in the community, Chris, he went, as you know, he went to Penn State. And so he's combined the Pencil states of Pennsylvania, New York, and New Jersey, where he is now. And he kind of gives back in all three states. Uh, he's got something called the Saquon Barkley Center for Excellence. Uh, it's a sports facility that, uh, it gets kids moving, Chris. It provides academic support, health and wellness. Now, this is in Pennsylvania. Uh, he does other things in Pennsylvania to really celebrate high school athletes. Uh, he'll attend games and things like that. As far as back in New York, very, very involved with the United Way. Um, you know, he's been at the Gridiron Galas for children and families in New York City. 
Uh, he's been very involved in a, an organization called the Children of Promise, which, uh, you know, it's a very, very sad situation. It involves kids who are, uh, have been impacted by incarcerated family members, Chris. Well, he's there mentoring and supporting these kids. Uh, he'll take these kids to uh, games and everything. Uh, he'll make sure they get uh, jerseys. And uh, Giants do a lot of this stuff as far as, you know, around the holidays. Uh, he hosted a, a jingle jam party, they called it, Chris. He gave each kid there a new winter coat, backpack, winter caps, new balls. I mean, he, this guy does all kinds of stuff. Very active with Make-A-Wish. Um, has been involved with that from the very beginning. Uh, I just hit about five or six bullets. There's so much more that this guy has done. He's always been, only been in the year five years, always been in the league five years. But uh, go to the website. Uh, it tells you about each nominee and, and just see what this guy has done. And anybody that interviews him tells, tells you, Chris, that he's the nicest guy and will find time for anyone. So uh, when you have a guy like that that gets it done on and off the field, we got to give a shout out to Saquon Barkley. Yeah, 100%. So many different things he's involved with and doing good things out in the community. So kudos to Saquon Barkley and to you for bringing that story tonight, Bob. This week, I'm going to put my spotlight on Mike Marchinski, the senior manager of marketing events for the Steelers. And here's why. He has three sons who play high school football in the Pittsburgh area and Marchinski is uh, is teaching his sons about how important it is to be good leaders on and off the field. So he thought, you know what? What if there was a way to honor local high school football players for doing just that? And thus, the Pittsburgh Steelers all-peer team was born. And the first team was recently announced by the Steelers. It consists of 11 players from the WPIAL or the Pittsburgh City League who go above and beyond to provide mentor-like support for their teammates. The Steelers partnered with the mentoring partnership of Southwest Pennsylvania to select the players. They wanted to recognize kids who are being positive role models in school with their teams and out there in their communities. And they're looking for kids who are beyond just athletes. Marchinski said it's a big need for peer leaders, whether it's on the team or just in school in general. And he went on to say that role players who may not be the superstars of their teams, but they're these are the kids that they're also looking for because those are the kids that you make good teams around. The players had to be nominated by a teacher, an athletic director, or a school principal. And 11 players who were selected are Tamari Robinson of Brashear High School, Raymar Coleman of Obama Academy, Sean Solomon of Brazier, Zapula Lewis of Ambridge, Ryan Palmieri of Pine Richland, Kyla Rombold of New Brighton, Jackson Hutter of Mount Pleasant, Braden Micah of Kiski area, Dior Devers of Our Lady of, of the Sacred Heart, Wesley Maxwell of Clarenton, and then Demetrius Taylor of Beaver Falls. This is a tremendous idea, in my opinion, Bob. I'm sure yours as well. Kudos to Mike Marchinski for coming up with it. The criteria fits perfectly into what we shout out weekly here in this segment. Of course, kudos to the Evan kids for being great leaders, both on and off the field. But this is the thing that we are looking for in this segment. People that are great leaders, great mentors on and off the field and getting it started early. I love the fact that he came up with this idea and started to implement it in the local high schools and then shouting these kids out. They were at the Steelers game, final home game and, and you know all that sort of thing. But I love the fact that he thought to himself, you know what? This is what we need. I'm trying to teach my sons 
to be good leaders on and off the field. Let's get this implemented citywide and recognize the kids that are doing that. Thought it was tremendous. It was because I mean, when I, I'm listening to you, and you know, it's that same theme we've had throughout the year, especially tonight about role players and how they put you over the top. And he realizes that. And my goodness, doing some great things in Pennsylvania, and uh, it's only going to branch out. And uh, again, you're right. That's the type of thing we need to see in the segment. Um, and we'll always do this segment as long as we do this show. That's exactly right. All right, my friend, it is time for us to put a bow on this season of Thursday Night Tailgate. We want to send out our thanks again tonight to Tony Reno, Eddie Kennison, and Kurt Bavakwa for joining us. And Bob, huge privilege to spend another season doing this show with you. Yeah, Chris, uh, same here with you, man. I mean, we've been doing it so long now. Um, as many of you know, we we go past the 12 years. We did baseball together and et cetera. That's right. And, uh, you know, three old friends tonight that continue to come back. We have so many guests like that over the years, and that's why we still do this. It's not for the new guys that come out. It's, the, it's our friends that continue to, to allow us to interview them. And um, it's just been a privilege to, to work with you and these people weekly. And, uh, you know, I know uh, it seems like a long time until the next show, but again, uh, we'll remember this conversation when we, when we uh, do the next show in the fall so um it's been a great year chris and again i look forward to year number 12. yeah so do i very much so folks as we put a bow on this season remember you can follow us whether it's during the season or anytime you can find us on twitter and instagram i am at ct mascaro bob is at bob underscore lazari the show is at tnt podcast bob uh bob and i both have our own facebook pages so you can find us on there we've got a, a page for the show Thursday night tailgates, click that like button. We'd appreciate that very much. You can interact. You can ask us any questions, put your comments, that sort of thing there on our Facebook page. Please continue to check out our website, thursdaynighttailgate.com. You'll be able to stay up to date with what we're doing and what we're preparing for the show. And you can find the show as a podcast on just about every podcasting site out there. It's on, it's on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, Podbean. If you've got a favorite podcasting app, we're probably on that one too. Just type in Thursday Night Tailgate in your search bar. You'll probably see the show come up for you there. Bob, thank you again and take us home one more time. Yeah, you stay warm and well, Chris. And you we too. want to thank our great announcer, Joe Lajanusa, throughout the year for the wonderful job he did with our intro and ads. We also want to thank Kyle Turley and the Kyle Turley Band for the upcoming outro music on behalf of myself and Chris. We want to thank everyone out there tonight for listening throughout the year. We appreciate you the very most until next season, folks. Good night, Kevin. Good night, Terry. Good night, Rusty and good night, coach Dan Reeves. We miss you guys. Coming down the mountain, I take a breath of sin. Can't tell the day or time, but I know this day will end. On a mission I can't see, they say I am the one. In the end, you